0: and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Need an affordable source for Stephen King movies, books, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit SecondhandBookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code The Circle for 20% off their order at any time, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's SecondhandBookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, everybody. I am Sarah, and thank you for joining me today as we talk about Chapter 37 of The Stand. Um, Very quickly, you might have noticed that I have some new intro music, and you'll probably notice I have new outro music if you uh, get that far. (laughs) Um, I just wanted to switch it up a little bit and get something maybe a little bit more specific to the podcast. So hopefully you guys don't mind the change. Um, the music that I chose is, is a little bit more mild than the Project Blue soundtrack. So um, I hope that you guys enjoy it anyway. I like it. So, Also, um, this particular episode might sound a little different than usual. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. I'm still kind of um, 37 chapters, 34 episodes into this podcast. I'm still kind of teaching myself uh, the ins and outs of editing. <laughs> I'm not great at it, but I'm still learning. Um, but my the usual the computer that I usually record on. Um, I decided this morning to uh, restart to update it, and it uh, as of right now is still updating. <laughs> And then I knew if I waited, it would be a while for me to get this recorded and edited and out to everybody. So I opted to um, record this episode on my laptop. I don't know how it's going to go. We're gonna. It seems to be doing okay right now. It's a fairly new laptop, so um, hopefully it doesn't sound terrible. Um, but other than that, I'm going to just give you guys a quick recap before we jump into chapter 37. Uh, last week in Chapter 36, Fran and Harold finally find some common ground and decide to leave a gunquit together and head for Stovington, Vermont, where they plan on checking out the CDC to see if anyone there is still working um, on the super flu. But before they go, Harold paints a message on the side of Moses Richardson's barn in a gun quit, giving the directions of the route that they plan to take in, in case any survivors happen by, and want to follow and meet up with them. In Chapter 37, we finally catch up with Stu Redman, who escaped the very same CDC in Chapter 29. He's been walking for about four days now, opting, opting to walk rather than finding, say, you know, a bike or a motorcycle to bypass uh, the traffic pileups and all the wrecks. He's passed South Reigate, New Hampshire, and now he's making his way through the country occasionally spotting some small animals moving about in the underbrush. Birds are singing, and Stu has even spotted deer and cow. Fresh meat, although he couldn't bring himself to shooting the cow for food. He was just too happy to see some actually alive. And on the left of the road he is on is a rock wall that meandered in and out of the brush, and on the right is a small brook. Just beyond that, the sound of a dog barking. Stu finds this a little out of the ordinary because he had seen a lot of dead dogs uh, since leaving Stovington, but no live ones. Stu figures the dog he's hearing now will be extremely people shy and will probably just bark at him from beneath the brush as he walks by. Stu's pretty prepared for his journey, unlike uh, Rita Blakemore. (laughs) He's got his day glow pack. He's got proper boots on and a wide brimmed hat. He also has an army carbine slung over his shoulder. And Stu doesn't really expect to have to use the gun, but it's probably a good idea to have it. He picks up Route 302, figuring that sooner or later it would take him to the ocean. When that happens, that's when he'll decide what to do. He didn't want to make any decisions or think about any decisions until he got there. Stu really enjoys hiking. Um, He felt like he needed the exercise after being cooped up for two weeks prior to his escape from Stovington. And his being cooped up for those two weeks has made him feel flabby and out of shape. I've been there, Stu. He knew sooner or later his slow pace would probably trigger some impatience, and he will eventually get a bike or a motorcycle. But for now, he's content with um, hiking east, taking his time to look at whatever he wanted to look at, taking breaks when needed. And he is obviously in no hurry, and why would he be? The hike is soothing in a way. Little by little, the lunatic search for a way out was fading into memory. Just something that had happened, instead of a thing so vivid, it brought cold sweat out onto his skin. The memory of that feeling of someone following him had been the hardest to shake. Stu is still plagued by nightmares, mostly of Elder, um, arriving in that room in the CDC to carry out his final orders to kill Stu. And in his nightmares, instead of being quick with that chair... Stu misses Elder, who is able to sidestep the attack, and he shoots Stu square in the chest. It's a recurring dream, always leaving him feeling unrested in the morning. But generally, when he wakes up, he's so glad to be alive that he barely realizes how tired he really is. And then the night before this chapter begins, um, the dream had not come back. And Stu knows his trauma and fears won't disappear all at once, but, quote, He thought maybe he might be walking the poison out of his system little by little. Maybe he would never get rid of it all, but when most of it was gone, he felt sure he would be able to think better about what came next, whether he had reached the ocean by then or not. As Stu comes around the bend, he's finally greeted by the dog that he heard barking so far back. And this dog is an auburn-colored Irish setter. And this dog is not people-shy whatsoever. In fact, the dog is extremely excited to see Stu, and it jumps up with his paws on Stu's belly, the force of the movement causing Stu to have to step back. This is when another voice joins in, a male voice calling Kojak, the dog, calling him down, telling the dog to leave the man alone. Kojak listens, but his tail continues to go crazy, indicating his pleasure at the new company. The voice belongs to a man of about 60, wearing a ragged sweater, old gray pants, and a beret. He's sitting on a piano stool, holding an art palette with an easel and canvas resting in front of him. The man introduces himself as Glenn Bateman, and he is the first person Stu has seen alive since escaping the CDC. Once Stu gives his own name and promises he has no intention of using his gun, Glenn asks Stu if he would like some caviar inviting him to stay for lunch. The two men exchange some niceties um, as Glenn grabs a tablecloth that once belonged to Grace Baptist Church in Woodsville. It says, Used to be a part of the communion set at the Grace Baptist Church in Woodsville, Bateman said. I liberated it. I don't think the Baptists will miss it. They've all gone home to Jesus, at least all the Woodsville Baptists have. They can celebrate their communion in person now. Although I think the Baptists are going to find heaven a great letdown, unless the management allows them television, or perhaps they call it heaven vision up there, on which they can watch Jerry Falwell and Jack Van Ipe. What we have here is an old pagan communing with nature instead. The men go down to the brook water and clean up, and Stu feels pretty happy in this moment. He feels like meeting this particular man at this particular time seemed somehow exactly right. He thinks with some surprise that just maybe everything will be all right. Stu does not like the caviar. And if you guys have had, I have, I've had caviar once and I did not like it either. (laughs) I think in the book it was, he described it as cold jellyfish or something. Fish jelly. I don't know, but that was a pretty apt description. Thankfully, Glenn has other things to eat. Salami, pepperoni, sardines, and Keebler fig bars. I have not had a Keebler fig bar I think since I was a kid, and now I when I was reading this chapter, I did not um, crave any of the other food, but I did crave some Keebler fig bars. (laughs) During the meal, Glenn tells Stu a little bit about himself. His wife had been dead for ten years and they had no children. Bateman was an assistant professor of sociology at the Woodsville Community College. Woodsville was a small town famous for its community college and four gas stations. Most of his colleagues had not cared for him, he said, and the feeling had been heartily mutual. They thought I was a lunatic, he said. The strong possibility that they were right did nothing to improve our relations. He had accepted the superflu epidemic with equanimity, he said, because at last he would be able to retire and paint full-time, as he had always wanted to do. Kojak was not his dog before the superflu, though he had seen the dog across town before. He never knew what the dog's name was, so he renamed him after the super flu. Kojak did not seem to mind. Glenn pulls a six-pack of beer from the brook and offers one to Stu. They toast to one another. May we have happy days, satisfied minds, and little or no low back pain. Glenn certainly likes to talk a lot, but that's okay because Stu is a man of very little words and he enjoys listening. But Glenn doesn't want Stu to think that he's dancing on the grave of the world, although he was admittedly prejudiced against it. I admit that freely. The world in the last quarter of the 20th century had, for me, at least all the charm of an 80-year-old man dying of cancer of the colon. They say it's a malaise which has struck all Western peoples as a century, any century, draws to a close— We have always wrapped ourselves in mourning shrouds and gone around crying, Woe to thee, O Jerusalem, or Cleveland, as the case may be. The dancing sickness took place during the latter part of the 15th century. Bubonic plague, the Black Death, decimated Europe near the end of the 14th. Whooping cough near the end of the 17th. And the first known outbreak of influenza near the end of the 19th. We've become so used to the idea of the flu it seems almost like the common cold to us, doesn't it? That no one but the historians seem to know that a hundred years ago it didn't exist. It's during the last three decades of any given century that your religious maniacs arise with facts and figures showing that Armageddon is finally at hand. Some people are always there, of course, but near the end of the century, their ranks seem to swell, and they are taken seriously by great numbers of people. Monsters appear. Monsters appear. Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, Jack the Ripper, Lizzie Borden, Charles Manson and Richard Speck, and Ted Bundy, in our own time, if you like, it's been suggested by colleagues even more fanciful than I that Western man needs an occasional high colonic, a purging, and this occurs at the end of the century so he can face the new century clean and full of optimism. And in this case, we've been given a super enema, and when you think about it, that makes perfect sense. We are not, after all, simply approaching the century this time. We are approaching a whole new millennium. With that being said, Glenn realizes that he is dancing on the grave of the world, but Stu disagrees. He doesn't think this is the end, just intermission. Glenn definitely has some thoughts um, about how things have happened and what will happen going forward. Theories, mostly, but they do make a lot of sense. They can't really seem to figure out why man, dogs, and horses catch the flu and die. You know, cats, cows, and deer seem to be fine. It doesn't make much surface sense, but Glenn feels that we'll be seeing some shifting in the ecology of the world. He's not sure if people will be able to reproduce in the wake of Captain Trips. If there are other dogs that have survived, like Kojak, it's not likely that they'll ever live long enough to have more puppies. There could also be healthy women still in the country who were pregnant when the flu hit, but some animals are basically going to just peter out, or rather, you know, they'll just die rather than reproduce. Except for the deer population, that will probably explode because there will no longer be a hunting season. The deer won't starve either. Gardens have been planted and are growing, so deer will have plenty to eat this year and the next, and then the crops of the world will grow wild giving them more food for at least seven more years. Stu feels like this might be an exaggeration, but Glenn doubts it. Stu also questions Glenn about his skepticism about humans reproducing. Glenn explains that there are two possibilities here. One is that the babies may not be immune, dying when they are born into the world or possibly in utero, which is less likely but possible. The superflu could have also had some kind of um, sterile effect on those who have been left. Yes, immunities can be passed from mother to child, just as, you know, them being susceptible could, but you can't bank on that. The future of babies in utero now is very uncertain. The mothers are immune, but the statistical probability says that the fathers were not and they are now dead. The other possibility Glenn has is that they'll finish the job of destroying their species themselves. You see, everybody's scattered now, but man is a gregarious social animal, and they will eventually all come back together again, if only to tell each other stories about how we survived the Great Plague of 1990. Glenn feels most of the societies built will be dictatorships run by Little Caesars, Other will be enlightened democratic communities, but a necessary requirement for any shot at survival is a community with enough technical people in it to get the lights back on. It can be done because this is not the aftermath of a nuclear war where everything has been destroyed. You just need the kind of people to know how to clean the plugs, which levers to pull, etc. And it's a question of how many of those who have been spared understand the technology that we all took for granted. There is a hypothetical scenario that Glenn lays out here, and I found this really interesting and sad but true. Community A in Boston and Community B in Utica, and they're aware of each other and the conditions in each camp. See, Community A is in good shape. They had the right guy to get their power back on, and he can teach the others which levers to pull and which gauges to watch. They have heat when it's cold, light to read at night, refrigeration. It's damn near idyllic. No drugs, no pollution, no race issues, no, bu- no money or barter problems between, you know, because all the, go- all the goods are out there on display, and there are enough to last a reduced society for at least three centuries. There will be no dictatorship here, and Community A will be run by a town-meeting form of government. But Community B, they don't have anyone to turn on the power plant. Technicians are now dead. It'll take them a long time to figure it out on their own and they're cold with winter coming. They're eating canned food, and they're miserable. So a strong man takes over, and that's good because they don't want to make the decisions. Let him take charge. This man sends somebody to Community A, asking to borrow their technician to get the power back on. The alternative is a long, dangerous move to the South for winter. Of course, Stu thinks Community A would say, yeah, go ahead and send the man to Community B in Utica. But Glenn disagrees. More than likely, that man will be held against his will. In the post-flu world, technological know-how is going to replace gold as the most perfect medium of exchange. So Community A is rich. Community B is poor. What would Community B do? Go down south, maybe, but probably threaten Boston with a nuclear warhead. Stu is very skeptical. They can't get their power plant going, but they can fire a nuclear missile at Beantown. Glenn replies here that he doesn't, you know, he wouldn't bother with the missile. Just detach the warhead and drive it into Boston with a station wagon. Basically, there are a lot of weapons lying around just waiting to be picked up and used. The fighting would begin again over religion or territory or some differences in ideology. Six or seven world nuclear powers, well, you know it. Now we end up with 60 to 70 just in the United States. All of the old soldiers have faded away and left their playthings behind. It's a grim thing to be thinking about, especially after so many grim things have already happened. But I'm afraid it's entirely possible. What can Stu really say to that? I mean, what would you say to that? It sounds very pessimistic and ominous, but it's also very realistic and believable. Glenn tells him that, um, you know, he is fundamentally a cheerful man because he has a low threshold of satisfaction. It's why he was greatly disliked in his field. He describes himself as an eccentric but cheerful, which is amazing given his doom and gloom that he's been in this entire chapter. (laughs) This is interesting because Glenn says that the only bane of his life has been his dreams. He has very vivid dreams and a lot of nightmares. Dreams of failure, of death, of suicide. Dreams of being with a woman who turns into a snake or corpse. He believes that dreams are a simple psychological emetic and the people who have them are more blessed than cursed. He says, there are all sorts of dream interpretations, Freud's being the most notorious, but I've always believed they served a simple eliminatory function and not much more. That dreams are the psych's way of taking a good dump every now and then. And that people who don't dream or don't dream in a way that they can often remember when they wake up, are mentally constipated in some way. After all, the only practical compensation for having a nightmare is waking up and realizing it was all just a dream. But there is one recurring dream that Glenn has, and he says that having this dream seems like the sum of all bad dreams. One that feels more like a vision, even though he knows that sounds crazy, but it's about a man. He is standing on a cliff or the roof of a very high building, and he's looking east. Sometimes he's wearing a blue jean jacket and blue jeans, but more often than not, he's in a robe with a cowl, and Glenn can never see his face, though he sees his eyes, red eyes. Glenn feels the man is looking for him. Sooner or or later, he'll find him, or Glenn will be forced to go to him, and that will be the death of him. He tries to scream in his dream, but that's when he wakes up. He says... If I were being psychoanalyzed, I suppose the shrink would say the dream expresses my unconscious fear of some leader or leaders who will start the whole thing going again. Maybe a fear of technology in general, because I do believe that all new societies which arise, at least in the Western world, will have technology as their cornerstone. It's a pity, and it needn't be, but it will be, because we are hooked. They won't remember, or won't choose to remember, the corner we had painted ourselves into— the dirty rivers, the hole in the ozone later, the atomic bomb, the atmospheric pollution. All they'll remember is that once upon a time, they could keep warm at night without expending much effort to do it. In this dream that he has, it preys on Glenn. But again, Stu says nothing. Glenn decides it's time to head back home, as he's already halfway drunk and is bound to thunderstorm later. He invites Stu to walk with him and to stay the night before he continues on his way. They can share another six-pack on the way back to the house. Stu accepts, and Glenn warns him that he'll probably talk the whole way home. Stu is okay with that. He just likes to listen. But during the journey back to Glenn, Stu does listen, but he does find his mind wandering. He's unnerved by Glenn's picture of a hundred little societies, some militaristic living in a country where thousands of doomsday weapons have been left around like a child's set of blocks, But the one thing his mind keeps returning to is Glenn's dream of the man of no face, the man with red eyes, looking restlessly to the east. That night, while sleeping in Glenn's house, he wakes up from another nightmare, sweaty and afraid he had screamed out loud. But he can still hear Glenn's snores from the next room, and Kojak is asleep in the hallway. Stu had been back in the CDC. Elder was dead this time, but everybody was dead. The place was an echoing tomb. He tried to find his way out, but couldn't, and Panic began to settle in deep. He found a room full of bodies who hadn't died from the flu, but who had been murdered. Their bodies full of gunshots and puncture wounds, grisly traumas that could have only been inflicted with blunt instruments. In another hall, there are red arrows and signs that say, Laser Armory, This Way to Cobalt Urns, Sidewinder Missiles in the Plague Room. Glenn's pessimistic view of the future society had clearly embedded itself into Stu's subconscious. But then he finds the exit, and the door is wide open, leading to the outside, where it's sweet and fragrant. But then someone steps in front of it, blocking Stu's way. The man with no face, dressed in jeans and a denim jacket. But he has red eyes, and blood dripping from his hands. His eyes are soulless. No soul, but a sense of humor a kind of dancing lunatic glee in his eyes. The man holds his hands out to Stu and says, Heaven and Earth, all of heaven and earth. This is when Stu wakes up. Kojak is now in the hallway, growling softly in his sleep. Even dogs dream. It's a perfectly natural thing, dreaming. Even the occasional nightmare. But it was a long time before he could get back to sleep. And that is the end of chapter 37. Chapter 37 we get introduced to a new character, Glenn Bateman, former assistant professor of sociology at a community college. And I think a character like Glenn is a good one to have in this book. While the others kind of flail around a bit, unsure of where to go or what to do, Glenn is able to look at the implications of what a scenario like this will do to a society and any future society. You know, you can look at it the way it was described, that this is just a purge and now they all get to start over fresh, but Glenn knows how people work, and he's pretty convinced that the survivors will eventually readapt and fall back into the bad habits that got them to this point all over again. Fighting over territory or religion, some society is able to use power again, but refusing to help those who haven't been able to figure it out, and then add in the thousands of weapons left behind by the government and army, including nuclear weapons. But of course, this isn't necessarily the truth. Um, maybe those left behind can find some kind of semblance of peace living amongst, amongst each other and is probably naive to think that they could, but I kind of feel like if you already automatically assume that you're doomed, you're going to be doomed. And I like that King had Bateman also touch upon the idea of reproduction and if humans can actually do such a thing after the super flu. The flu was airborne and it spread very quickly. It was very contagious so there's no banking on the idea that any babies born will be immune if their mothers are. Because if the fathers weren't, there's a very good possibility that the babies will be born, but ultimately succumb to Captain Trips like everybody else had. What if the mom and dad are both immune? I mean, you can't assume that the baby will be immune as well, because frankly, nobody really knows how Captain Trips was created. They don't really know how it works, or how it mutates. They don't know why some are immune and why some aren't. So this is good information for us to have, because obviously we have a pregnant woman in the book, in Fran, and she's three months pregnant. So is the baby okay? Fran is immune, but we have to assume that Jess Ryder was not, and he's probably dead. We didn't hear anything about him after they broke up over the phone, but we're going to just go ahead and assume that he has died. So will Fran be able to carry to term, and will the baby survive once it's delivered? King definitely puts his, um, he puts this here to add to the uncertainty and it adds some emotional stake for Fran and for the readers. Glenn describes himself as an eccentric, but cheerful. And I would say that he's quite, um, he is also quite cynical being a professor of sociology. I don't necessarily think that that's unusual. (laughs) You could ask if his cynicism kicked in, you know, after Captain Trips. Uh, when at least toward the end, it was pretty widespread that the government was responsible for everything and then society just collapsed upon itself. But Glenn admits that he was prejudiced against the world even before the end of it. And he took the superfluous stride. He took it with a sense of calmness. And I mean, I mean, it meant he could retire and paint. (laughs) It's a very flippant response, but I don't necessarily think that Glenn is apathetic towards everything. I think he's probably studied um, sociology long enough to understand that this was probably inevitable, and so why should he be surprised by it? And then, of course, Glenn's hypothetical situation with society A and B, one coming together as a democracy, having a town meeting type government, the other miserable, looking to one man to take charge and control things. We know the dark man is out there, the man with no face, and we know that there are some characters in the book so far who are more likely to follow a man like him. Glenn might be on to something with how society will reform, and people will find each other, they'll come together, and it's what they do after the fact that will determine the fate of their species. And, of course, I love checking in with Stu again, even though he doesn't have much to say in this chapter. He's definitely more of a bystander, um, but he does sit back and enjoy Glenn's company, even if he's not entirely thrilled with what Glenn has to say. But Stu does not argue with him. He just asks questions here or there, or voices some skepticism about Glenn's views. The two have a very easy rapport, which I liked. Um, Stu is headed for the ocean, and who knows if Glenn will accompany him or stay put. But they certainly have something in common, their dreams. Stu doesn't say much um, when Glenn is describing his, but the dream about the man with no face, looking to the east, disturbs Glenn, and then it disturbs Stu. And wouldn't you know, he happens to dream about the man with no face later that night. He's also back in the CDC again. Um, Being stuck inside of that was obviously very traumatic, and he is unable to find his way out. But instead of Elder chasing him, because Elder is dead in this dream, it's the man with no face who is blocking his path to freedom now, with his eyes red and the blood dripping from his hands. And of course, we get Kojak. I love Kojak. I am... By far, um, I am a dog person. <laughs> so knowing that most of the dogs in the universe of The Stand are gone really depresses me. But with Kojak alive, does that mean there are other dogs out there? Or is Kojak special in some way? Uh, why did this dog avoid contracting the flu that killed so many others? It makes you wonder if he has some other purpose. And that King put that little nugget in there for a reason where Glenn says, Kojak seems to be one of a kind. When Stu wakes from his nightmare, Kojak is dreaming too, growling a little bit in his sleep. Is he having bad dreams about the Dark Man? Or maybe he's just chasing a squirrel? We don't know. But this chapter does a really good job at possibly foreshadowing what's to come. And I like that King gives us something to think about through the form of Glenn Bateman. He's not just some wise old sage. He knows what he's talking about. And it reminds us after the fir- you know, after the worst of it, people will have to decide how to proceed with their lives we've had 36 chapters of getting to know our characters of the build-up to the superflu wiping out the country and possibly the rest of the world you know we got chaos and violence and grief and loss and now with it all settling our characters are setting out they're leaving home to find what who Glenn was an excellent way to bring us back from that and ask what comes next None of it sounds very good, of course, from his point of view, but these are important points to consider. Will people as a society learn from past mistakes, or will they end up finishing off the job, destroying everything and everyone that Captain Tripp's couldn't? For the record, I know that some people weren't terribly sure about Greg Kinnear's casting as Glenn Bateman, because he is... Uh, Glenn is around 60 years old. In the book, it was described, you know, Stu saw him and thought he was around 60. And Ray Walston played Glenn in the 1994 series when he was 80 years old. So Ray was about 20 years older than how Glenn was described. And this is a fun fact. Greg Kinnear is 56. It's kind of like Heather Graham being cast as Rita Blakemore and people thinking she wasn't old enough to play Rita, who is a middle-aged woman, but Heather is 49. So yeah, they look really good for their age. But I think that they are closer, at least Greg Kinnear is closer to Glenn's age in the book than Ray Walston was. Don't get me wrong, I love Ray Walston, and I loved him in the stand as Glenn, but I think Greg Kinnear is going to do a really great job. And next week, we're going to tackle chapter 38. This is a chapter I like to call the second epidemic. In a strictly Darwinian sense, it was the final cut. The unkindness of all, some might have said. And that is it for episode 34 of The Circle Opens. I want to thank you guys for sticking with me on this journey through the stand. And if you're enjoying the podcast, you can leave me a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or really any platform of which you uh, listen to the show. The ratings really help the show get, um, get noticed, I guess, and it really helps me get it out there for more people to find. So any rating or review you guys want to send me um, is really, really appreciated. You can also send me an email if you have anything you want to talk about or any questions at closes at gmail.com. And you can find me on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and Tumblr at The Circle Opens. So that is it for today, you guys. I hope you have a great weekend. And M-O-O-N, that spells, see you next week.